step back, okay, and don't, don't, uh, don't judge what I'm saying too quickly here. I want to make sure that everybody understands a couple of things real quick before we launch in. I've been getting a lot of questions, and some of that is, is not only for um, newer folks, which it is largely. Um, what's wrong with this thing? Yeah, well, I will fix it. Um, not just for newer folks, but uh, some of the folks that have been around a while, if you, if you think a little bit, sometimes you start thinking too much, you know what I mean? And uh, so I want to I just give you a quick synopsis here of three applications of Scripture, right? Uh, all right. Um, Brother Harris, would you run in my office? I think in the left-hand drawer at the bottom, I should have some more. Um, so what you have, this says historical, this says practical, and I'm going to also say spiritual, okay? Yeah, it's dying completely. So there's, there's three applications of Scripture. Go to Romans 15, 4 while we're getting the marker together. Romans 15, verse 4. I want you to understand uh, something about, we talk about rightly dividing a lot around here. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. We talk about rightly dividing a lot, right? See, I'm, I'm awful needy tonight. You notice that? High maintenance. Um, Rob ran downstairs to get some more, too. Okay. And that one's dead, too. <laughs> Hopefully one of those works, eh? Look at you. <laughs> All right, that one's done. Let's see what we got here. Nope. All right. Is it the board? Maybe it's the board. Who was saying that, Billy? Was that you, Billy? Ah, winner, winner, chicken dinner. All right. It was the preacher. Historical application. So we're looking at the different uh, applications of Scripture. You guys got Romans 15, 4? All right. So what's that say? Those things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, right? So he's talking about the Old Testament, and he's saying things that are written before time. Now, dispensationally, you understand that that stuff is not to you, right? But he's telling you that when it comes to your Bible, the things that were written back there are written for your learning, you see it, and giving you patience and comfort of the Scriptures, giving you hope. So when it comes to rightly dividing your Bible, you've got to understand this. There's three different applications of your Bible. The first application is historical. So Paul in Romans, throughout the book of Romans, but even in the Romans chapter 5, he talks about Abraham, and he uses Abraham as an example of your salvation. He talks about Adam. He uses Adam as an example of your salvation. And throughout Paul's writings, he'll talk about Moses and he'll use all kinds of stories from the Old Testament or illustrates these things from the Old Testament. That's a historical application. You've got to think about the historical application of every passage that is written. So when you're reading your Bible, historically speaking, who's talking? What was going on in Israel at that time? What was going on in the world at that time? So there's a historical application of every passage of Scripture in your Bible. Uh, you'll notice when I'm preaching on Sunday morning, we're going through Psalms, right? What, what do we do a lot? As we're going through Psalms, we're talking about, now this is a Psalm of David. And it's a Psalm of David when this was going on in his life, whenever we can identify it. What are we doing? We're giving you the historical application. 
Uh, as I preach through the Old Testament or different Old Testament stories, some of these guys that filled in for me were giving you different Old Testament passages that they were preaching from, and they're giving you the historical setting of that passage. They're teaching you what was going on at that time. Every passage of Scripture has a historical application to it. That one's simple enough. The most important thing is right here. Uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for number one what? Doctrine. That's the first thing about the Bible. You've got to understand doctrine. And then it says for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So doctrinally, that's the second application of Scripture you have to look at when you're looking at a passage. So when you go back here to Abraham and you're reading through Genesis, doctrinally I showed you his salvation does not match yours, right? I showed you how he's justified at one point and he's got imputed righteousness at another point and there's seven chapters difference between the two and a decade or a couple decades of life going between the two. Between the time he's justified and the time he gets imputed righteousness, they don't happen at one time. When you look back at Adam, which we're going to see tonight, his salvation wasn't like yours. Originally, his salvation was in don't eat the tree. <laughs> you already got it. And then he ate the tree and fell. But you are already fallen, and he tells you once you get unfallen, you can't fall again as far as your salvation is concerned. So in rightly dividing the word of truth, you've got to understand that there's a doctrinal application. And what Paul will do is he'll written things, take things that were written historically aforetime for our learning now, every passage of Scripture, all the way through your Bible, I'm telling you, every passage of Scripture, you can take what's being taught in that passage and make a practical or a spiritual application to your life, which is exactly what we're doing as we go through Psalms. I, I know this is real simple, but I'm just putting it on the board because I think it's going to help some of you based on the questions that are being asked to kind of be able to kind of dial in when you're looking at a passage because here's what's happening. I've given you a lot lately on rightly dividing. I've been preaching a lot lately against false doctrine, and that's going to keep going. We're not going to stop that. But what happens is you start getting a little bit too uptight when God speaks to your heart from a passage of Scripture. Does that make sense? So you'll go home and you'll read your Bible because we're like, you ought to read your whole Bible cover to cover. There's not a person in this room that shouldn't read your Bible. You should be able to read your Bible through. You should be able to say, I have read my entire Bible start to finish. It only takes four chapters a day, which would take the average person 15 to 20 minutes a day. That's it. To read your Bible through in one year. So you've been saved five years and you've never read your Bible through? Four years? You're telling me you can't read a chapter a day? Five minutes. You've been saved four years and you've never read your Bible cover to cover. Now, I'm getting on you a little bit because I'm trying to encourage you. to. There's no excuses. You should have finished your Bible. Uh, you grew up in church, and you've been in church since you were 5 or born or 10, and you're 15 now, and you've never read your Bible. You're 15 years old, and you've never read your Bible through cover to cover. Don't you know you're going to give account of yourself to God? Don't you think it matters what God has to say about your life? I mean, at 15 years old, think about it. You just got a couple more years till you're going to be real serious about getting married if you ain't married yet, you know, five more years or so. And that's one of the decisions that's going to impact the future of your life in a big way. You ought to be consuming yourself with the Bible. 
You ought to be reading it through once a year, every year if you're a teenager. There is no excuses. Hello? So you're reading your Old Testament through, and God speaks to your heart. And then the devil shows up and said, yeah, that's not to you. And all of a sudden, a blessing you were getting just got pulled away from you. You see why I'm showing you this tonight? I want you to read those psalms and I want you to just have God just speak to your heart and comfort your heart and deal with you and give you answers to prayer. And, and, and God will do that. A spiritual and a practical application from every passage of Scripture. How about, how about one that was asked me just uh, this evening? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is that to me? Well, where does that doctrinally correct Paul? Your doctrine for your salvation and for the way you're to operate and for how you're to believe is Paul. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. It's the books that are to the church. That's your doctrine for salvation. This is how you know you're not going into the tribulation period because all the tribulation passages are to the 12 tribes scattered abroad or to the Hebrews, 12 tribes are Jews, Hebrews are Jews, and all the passages in the Gospels that are talking about enduring to the end to be saved and the rest of that stuff is written in the tribulation period when Jesus was speaking to the Jews. He came as their king unto his own and his own received him not. So you know that anywhere in your Bible that you're reading, and, and here's the Apostle Paul, there's your pattern, and you got the rest of your Bible. This is the rest of your Bible, right? This is what's going to happen. The vast majority of that stuff is great, but you're going to hit some passages that are like that. Does that make sense? Doctrinally, doctrinally speaking, passages on salvation or passages on some of the gifts or passages on enduring to the end or things like that, where it doesn't line up doctrinally with Paul, then you know that's not to you. But, but don't overlook all of this because of these. Are you, is that making sense? Is that little weird illustration making any sense at all? Don't overlook all of this because of these. Right? So understand there's a historical setting. Get the historical setting. Try to get it as best as you can because it'll give you some frame of reference. Man, I'd like preaching. imagine trying to preach through the Bible without having any frame of reference. What David was going through and what happened and where he was when it occurred and the lion and the bear and Goliath and the brothers. And he's giving you all this historically awesome information. I mean, reading through the book of Acts and then trying to line that up with other parts. Of, it's just amazing to give you a historical framework to understand historically every passage has got a historical context. But here's a great example. Historically speaking, in Revelation 1 through 3, John's on the Isle of Patmos, right? But what happens? He's given the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he starts speaking, what's the doctrine? Well, the first couple of chapters, he's talking to the churches. But when we went through Revelation, I showed you how it's really weird how those church phases line up as you look at church history and you can see how it lines up in this Bizarre way only God could do, but yet there's some stuff that doesn't match Paul. So doctrinally, those churches in the Revelations 1 through 3, doctrinally, that's churches in the tribulation period. Those are seven churches that will exist in the tribulation period that he's speaking to because they're threatened to lose their salvation. You can see a picture of the church age because that's the power of that book. But you understand when the doctrine doesn't line up that God didn't make a mistake, you've got to know who it's speaking to, right? 
So there's your historical setting. There's understanding your doctrinal setting. It's a Jew in the tribulation period. A church is a called out assembly. The Corinthians tells you the church in the wilderness. That wasn't the body of Christ, the one body, the bride. That's the church in the wilderness. A church is a called out assembly. So even though the bride is gone, the churches in the tribulation period doctrinally don't match your doctrine. So those parts, you don't have to worry about him coming and removing your candlestick if you don't fall back in love with him like he used to be. Is that making sense to you? Spiritual application? Thou art rich and increased with goods and has need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I'll spew you out of my mouth. Spiritual application. Don't be a lukewarm Christian. Don't fall more in love with money than you are with Jesus Christ. Realize that when you're lukewarm, you don't have any taste of God at all. He just, that, that relationship gets severed. But understand, doctrinally, you're not losing your salvation. Do you see how that works? You can make a practical and spiritual application. God can speak to your heart from that passage, even though it's not doctrinally to you. Just understand when the doctrine doesn't match what's going on. Is that, is that making sense to you? Clear as mud, over-teaching it, move on? Okay. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to pick up where we left off last time in verse number 11. Keeping this in mind, you're going to watch as he uses these spiritual applications and he's using these illustrations from the Old Testament. But what he's not telling you, he's, he's not telling you that your salvation is exactly like Abraham's. He's been using Abraham's and tonight we're going to see Adam as an example or an illustration to apply it to the right doctrine. Verse number 11, well look at verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son... Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So if he reconciled you to God when you were his enemy. Remember how we finished last week? How much more do you think he loves you now that you're not his enemy? You're not his enemy, are you? You love Jesus Christ? You trusted him as your savior? Then God loves you today. Don't you ever doubt that when life gets rough, when things don't go your way, when it doesn't feel like God's blessing you. If he's already loved you when you were his enemy, then he loves you when you're trying to do right, even when you fail. Look at verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, now, by whom we have now received the atonement. You know, that is the only time in the New Testament the word atonement shows up. It shows up like 80-something times in the Old Testament. One time in the New Testament, and it's right there. And all the new Bibles decide to get rid of it. That's interesting to me, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it only shows up once in the New Testament. Why? There's one atonement. It's been done. There ain't multiple lambs of God being slain like there was multiple lambs in the Old Testament being slain. There's one lamb, and that atonement's been made, and there's one atonement, and that's it. It shows up once in the New Testament with over 80 times in the Old, but new, these, these new Bible uh, 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 scholars that are trying to make uh, new translations all the time are dumber than dirt. I was listening to them on a 103.5 this week. Some big shot preacher. Clueless, man. Absolutely clueless. He's given the dumbest, most, most simplistic argument in the world and trying to make it sound spiritual. My heart went out to all the innocent people sitting there listening to that stuff and eating that garbage that man's producing. He's saying, well, the King James, they, attack, they specifically attacked the King James Bible, specifically called it out. Well, now I know this one's controversial, but there's still a lot of them King James only people out there. And I know that's a bit of a, <laughs> amen. 
I know that's a bit of a radical position, but I know people aren't going to like this, and I'm probably going to get some hate mail, but there's still a lot of those King James onlyers, and so what do you say to the King James only argument? And well, the King James was written from the newest uh, 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 originals. They weren't written from the oldest and the best. And what he's not telling them is of the name of it. Why don't you tell them what the name of it? Why don't you say the Vaticanus? Why don't you let them know where it came from? Why don't you tell them the Sinaiticus? Why don't you let them know where it came from? And they're better and they're this and that and the other thing. And it was just the dumbest, most simplistic argument I ever heard in my life. And it was an argument that nobody can argue with because they haven't been through all the schooling that he's been through and had all these one-liners given to him that you can't debate. Can't prove it. He, can't, he, didn't, he didn't refer to one passage of Scripture when he defended his position anti-King James Bible. But they both then gave it lip service. You know, I'm not, no, I don't have a problem with the King James Bible. It's one of the most beautiful that there is, but the language was very archaic back then, and nowadays it doesn't match up. Just a bunch of baloney just completely undermining people's faith in the Word of God. They're ignorant, and they don't give you Bible verses to prove what they're saying. And it, it grieves my heart, man, and people listen to that stuff and eat it up and don't know any better. I'm not, I'm not upset with people that don't understand or people, average people, churchgoers that don't get it. I'm not upset with them. I'm upset with these false preachers. That's a sheep. That's a wolf in sheep's clothing because he won't talk the way I talk. Well, brother... <laughs> Good verse 12. Wherefore is by one man, who is that? Sin entered into the world. Excuse me, I should have finished that before I asked you. Who is that? One man, sin entered into the world. Who is that one man? And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It came in by one guy, so what's he doing? He's telling you that you were born a sinner because Adam sinned. And by Adam, sin came in, and you had it naturally, and there's nothing you can do about it. You got it naturally. You understand that, right? Yes, sir. Every man, every woman, every child is born a sinner. By the way, that just reminded me, Lou, Lou led one of his friends to Christ last week at the cafeteria at school, right, Lou? What was your friend's name? Liam. And he got saved. He said, he was talking to him about salvation, and he said, what do you say, when can I do it or something like that? And you said you can do it right now? Is that how it went? It's pretty awesome, huh? Liam is how old? Nine. Nine years old. Do you think he doesn't know he's a sinner? Of course he knows he's a sinner. You know how he knows that? Conscience. Naturally put in him. By God. Ain't that wild? Really good job. I meant to say something about that a long time ago and I forgot to, so really proud of you. So how do you become a sinner? He became a sinner because his dad was and everybody else is. It's natural. Anybody with any common sense never fights back. They never push back on that point ever, ever. Talking to a young guy today and, and he just straight up said, well, like you said in church the other day, we're all sinners. He doesn't know anything about the Bible, anything about church. He just said, well, like you said in church the other day, we're all sinners. I mean, yeah, well, that's a, good, that's a guy right there that you could do something with that guy. You can reach him because he's got common sense. His conscience is still tender enough to have no problem saying, yes, I'm a sinner. Look at the next verse. Now, I'm going to show you something about the way the Bible's written, okay? And I want to help you with this because some of this stuff is not as easy as, you know, we try to make it out to be. 
So watch the way God writes this Bible. You're supposed to meditate on his precepts, right? God wrote the Bible the way he wrote it to force you to slow down. That's my opinion. I'm, I'm serious. My opinion is he wrote it like that to force you to slow down and think about what he's saying and then look back at it. And when you do that, it, it clicks. It's shocking. You're supposed to meditate on his law. Let it soak in your brain a little bit. For until the law, sin was in the world. When did the law show up? Not a trick question. When did the law show up? Okay. That was quite a ways into the world, wasn't it? There's a whole lot going on before that. Sin was there. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. So people weren't going to hell? That's not what he's saying. Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that sin was not imputed, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So from Adam to Moses, there was no law. The law enters with Moses, and death continued even though there was no law. They're still dying. Guess what? Babies die. Guess what? They die because they're sinners. But here's a great passage of Scripture that shows you babies don't go to hell. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, what he's talking about in context is by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So he's talking about the passing down of sin through the natural birth. So what he's telling you is he's using an illustration from a historical setting, and he's saying back then the law wasn't there, so sin isn't imputed when there is no law. So a baby is born a sinner, but a baby doesn't have imputed sin to it, even though death reigned from Adam to Moses. Those guys were going somewhere. God wiped the world out before the law because of their sin and their wickedness, because they had uh, was first one first dispensation was innocence, and then was conscience, and then was human government, and they had multiple dispensations given to them a dispensing of truth but they didn't have any law yet and he's using that as an illustration to tell you that sin's not imputed when those little babies die or somebody that's mentally handicapped dies and they don't have a capability of understanding right from wrong they don't go to hell all right nevertheless death reigned from adam and moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of adam's transgression who is the figure of him that was to come so Adam is a picture, is a figure of the one to come, Jesus Christ. So what he's going to start doing, he's going to start using some comparison and contrast here. Go back with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 18, though. I want to show you a couple things real quick here that will help you out in understanding God because this is another one that a lot of men's minds get real tied up on some of this stuff, and I don't want you to get caught by it. Uh, there's a few different things we'll be seeing as we go through the book of Romans that really get people caught up, and they're hard ones to get over. Uh, you'll start getting grounded in your Bible, and somebody will come along, and they'll get you all tied up into Calvinism. We'll show you that. It'll happen to you sooner or later. Uh, you'll start getting real serious about your Bible. You'll start learning and growing. And look, come on, guys. When you really get a hold of truth, when it starts making some sense to you, don't you know it? Yes, sir. I, doesn't it feel like light? <laughs> Uh, um, I, I like to illustrate it like, uh, like a weight lifted off of you, right? Excuse me for being so feeling oriented, but it just, you just know when you're looking for truth, you get the, it's like, oh, wow, look at that. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Hey, I got a question. Oh, thank you, right? Does it, it's a great thing to get truth. 
and you'll be going down that road and the Holy Spirit will be giving you that joy and that confirmation that you got it and you're on the right track and then somebody will come along and all of a sudden you get a dark feeling. You get a dirty feeling. And it's because they show you something that makes you doubt everything you're being taught and everything you believe. And you go, now there's a difference between being challenged on what you believe and go, you know what, that's truth and I'm going to have to make a decision as to whether I stick to my guns, the conviction, right? That's one thing. What I'm talking about is something totally different. I'll, I'll just throw a couple out there to you. Um, you're going to see it as we go through here. Um, only the elect are saved. Um, how about this one? Um, if you said a prayer to get saved, that's a work, so you're not saved. How about this one? If you didn't repent when you got saved, you're not really saved. Did you repent when you got saved? Did you repent when you repented? I'm serious, man. It never ends with the amount of foolishness these idiots dream up to mess up people's minds and get them out of church. They strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. So I want to make sure you don't get caught by them. Here's another one. How could a just, loving God send people to a lake of fire forever if they've never had a chance to hear the gospel? The Muslims believe what they believe just as much as you believe what you believe. What makes you think you're right and they're wrong? Genesis 18.25, look at God. He says, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Now watch the question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The first thing you got to understand when it comes to some of this stuff is that God will do right every time. So that means if throwing your grandma in hell is the right thing, then he did the right thing. I'm sorry to say that. And that means if he works things out his own way, he works them out his own way, what he does is right. He always does right. Now let me show you so that you don't go away with me being too harsh on you. Go to the book of Jonah, if you would, please. Let me show you. How God works. He gave us this on purpose. He wanted us to see that he does things behind the scenes to never just ruthlessly throw somebody's grandma in hell for no good reason. Right? Yeah, that's a pretty harsh thing to say. Well, I understand that. But people, when it comes to family, they start getting all emotional and they start thinking that God somehow is unjust. I'll tell you this much. God would never put your grandma in hell without giving her an opportunity first. Well, my grandma was a good person. Well, that's great. Then let's hope when she got her opportunity, she took it. And by the way, just because you don't know doesn't mean she wasn't saved. I talked to somebody just this week who I'm sure has made a profession of faith more than once and understands the gospel but hasn't grown much, got in church or read the Bible much and listens to everybody everywhere, every podcast and every TV idiot out there and just straight up said, well, I said, well, if you're born again, you don't got to worry about it. And he said, well, I sure hope so. We've been down this road dozens of times. I just said, yeah, if you're saved, you're all right, man. Don't worry about it. Well, I hope so. Well, I, th I personally think he's saved, so I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> you go ahead and just continue your whole life worrying and struggling and being all anxious, and then when the rapture hits, we'll high-five on the way up. You know, I mean, <sighs> Jonah chapter 4. God's rebuking Jonah because God blessed Jonah's preaching and the whole town got right. <laughs> and Jonah's mad because that was the enemies of God's people and didn't want to see him saved. 
And God says this to Jonah, And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons, that's 60,000. Now watch what he said about them, that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. God said, Jonah, I sent you to preach to those people because they didn't get the difference between right and wrong. They didn't get the difference between right and left. They couldn't tell the difference between their right hand and their left hand. That's how ignorant and blind and foolish they were. That's how wicked their culture was. That's how far gone they were. I sent you to preach to them. And when they heard the preaching and felt the conviction, they got saved. God gives everybody an opportunity. That is God's business. So you and I have to trust God about what about the people in the Amazonian jungles and what about the people here? What about the Muslims there? And, and you gotta try, if, if it's that much of a burden on your heart about those people, why don't you just get on your face and ask God about them? And keep asking God about it. If you're really burdened about them, why don't you pray the Lord of the harvest that he'll send forth laborers into his harvest? Why don't you do that? And why don't you just, instead of judging God, I had, I had a guy that never would let that go. That was his excuse for never becoming the Christian God wanted him to be. It was always, well, what about, well, what about, well, what about, well, what about, well, what about him? If you're so worried about him, why don't you fast and pray for him? And then see what God does. All of a sudden, you're going to be called to that mission field. Maybe that's why God put him on your heart. Because if you don't go, somebody else is going to go. But he knows there's some people out there looking for the truth and he wants to send somebody to them. Just maybe. But I'll tell you this much, God gives everybody an opportunity. And if an opportunity has never been presented to a child that's not old enough to discern the difference between right and left or right and wrong, then sin's not imputed to them. Back to Romans chapter 5, please. So you've got to trust God with that stuff. Now, every man, woman, and child on the planet gets a witness from creation and conscience, right? So you say, what's the age of accountability? I have no idea. I think it could be different from kid to kid. I think it would have a lot to do with the environment they were raised in, the country they grew up in, how much truth they got, their aptitude, their intellect, all the rest of that stuff. The kind of job mom and dad are doing in the house, all that stuff. It varies probably from individual to individual. That's why mom and dad, you ought to be a praying people. You ought to be seeking God. You ought to watch those kids and you ought to be available to them when they ask you questions. To listen to the questions they're asking and to answer the question they ask instead of try to make them know what you want them to know. You know, I can lead a three-year-old to Jesus Christ. You know that, right? And they're not even old enough to know the difference between right and wrong yet. That's why it's so important from day one for you to discipline them. Tell them yes, no, and when they don't do what they're told, they get disciplined because the more you discipline them, the quicker they're going to get the difference between right and wrong. They're little sinners, but they're not sinning because they understand what they're doing from the beginning. They're sinning by nature. And the more you drill it into them, that was wrong. You know what I started doing when they got to a certain age and started asking certain questions? We talked about it. I said, did you notice that? Yeah, I know. Did you hear that? Yeah, I did. So we started using the word sin. What'd I tell you? You said, no. What'd you do? I did it anyways. You know what that is? That's a sin. Now go to your bedroom. You're going to get what you got coming. Be there in a minute. Right? Use the word sin. Why? Because we, we really want to work with him. <laughs> and he works on everybody. But you got to watch and know that each individual kid. So just, just comfort yourself that if that child passed before they were old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, there's no, sin's not imputed when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after at the similitude of Adam's transgression. They weren't, you know, that crazy, that bad, that, that extreme, but they still died. Who is the figure of him that was to come? Now watch this. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Ain't that kind of a confusing way to put it? I heard one preacher say it this way. He said, God could have wrote this a lot better. And he's a man that believes every word of the Bible. God wrote it that way on purpose. You know what he's doing? He's comparing and contrasting. So he's using the offense as an illustration, but not as the offense. So also is the free gift. The offense covered every man, woman, and child in the world. The free gift covers every man, woman, and child in the world. This one's negative, but not as this one, so also this one. Does that make sense? Does my little antics help you connect it? So it's a compare and contrast is what it is. And notice in verse 15, it's a free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift, see it, by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. So the offense, because the offense, many be dead. Much more the grace of God. Wait a second. How bad is the offense? Now, the fallout of the offense, what you have to deal with in your daily life, the struggles you have spiritually, the problems you have, the doctor visits, the, all the negative, every tear you've cried. Have you ever stopped to think about how many tears a child has cried by five years old? By five. How many thousands of tears have already been cried? It is so sad to think about a little infant. I mean, why are you crying? They're born and the first thing, it's got to be a freaky thing. Because I was just warm and I was comfortable and everything was fine. And now all of a sudden, I mean, for the baby, not for the mother, nothing was comfortable. They were always cold. Nothing's fine, right? Then the baby's born it's like, like... That's, that's sin in the world. And by five years old, you've already cried. Have you ever seen how many, like, ten-year-olds? You've already cried. By the time you're 15. Hey, let's look at it this way. 15 and you've got a mom and a dad that are still married and in love or trying to be in love. That's a blessing. As long as they're trying. Amen. Amen. And you're in church. You're not being abused. You're not being beat half to death. Dad brings the paycheck home. You really don't have a whole lot to cry about. And you still cry. Now think about the kids that actually have something to cry about. They don't have dad. Or they don't have mom. There is abuse going on. There is heartbreak going on. Parents are going through a divorce. Home life is terrible. By 15. Pretty bad, right? I'm trying to emphasize the bad. Guess what the grace does? Much more the grace of God. <laughs> now, I'm making a spiritual application to doctrinally something that's talking about salvation. 
But I'm telling you, folks, because we have Jesus Christ and because we have a King James Bible, because we have the grace of God, you ought to be abounding in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life ought to be full of blessings. You ought to be able to get up and say, thank you, God. You ought to cry some tears of joy. You ought to have some prayers answered. You ought to have something worth living for. You ought to be able to say, yes, because of sin, there's a lot of pain in my life. But because of the grace of Almighty God, the joy in Jesus Christ way outweighs the pain of sin and the pain of the world. It is way better to be walking with God. It is way better to be saved. And the goodness of God outweighs all the garbage. So you ought to be thankful if you're saved this evening. And even if you've got a bunch of stuff on the other side to cry about, why don't you focus a little bit more on the much more the grace of God. I mean, the grace of God can get you through anything. I'm telling you, the grace of God can get you through anything. And we ought to abound in that grace. We abound in the pain of the sin. Let's abound in the grace. I am convinced... I'm on a rabbit trail, but I'm having fun, so whatever. I am convinced that some people are miserable because they want to be miserable. Period. You're just a brat. You're just a jerk. And I'm convinced that a lot of us would be quite a bit happier if we would be like Paul and say, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. (laughs) I know it's out of context. It's a great spiritual practical application, so don't get all doctrinal on me, you know what I mean? Think about the grace of God once in a while and abound in it, man. It's a great thing. And not as, verse 16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so was the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, Adam, but the free gift, see it, is of many offenses unto justification. That's Jesus Christ. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, Adam, Much more, you see the compare and contrast? Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Let's stop. The universalists are going to tell you this. Eventually, we all get saved, even the devil. And they would use a verse just like this to prove it. Now look at the wording of the verse. Therefore, as the offense, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So they'll say, see, you're automatically justified by what Jesus did. It's universalism. And it's a free gift. So these people are like the antithesis of the same madness that the Calvinists have. To say everybody's automatically going to be saved no matter what. Even Lucifer. Yes, the extreme Unitarians will tell you that even Lucifer eventually purges his sin in the lake of fire and comes out unto salvation. It's madness. It's taking a verse out of context and privately interpreting that verse based on that verse without doing what I've told you, and you compare Scripture with Scripture, and no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. That's why you got to look at all of them, and you got to understand, and you got to balance them, and you got to have the, the clear ones interpret the foggy ones, never, never interpret the foggy one based on the foggy one. You always put one that's clear together with the foggy one, and then it makes sense. Look at it. It's a free gift. Which means what? 
doesn't mean you automatically have to take it. You've got to receive a free gift. Look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That's Jesus Christ, right? Adam disobeyed. That caused us all to fall into sin. Jesus Christ obeyed, and by that many are made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. God brought the law in with Moses to really show man his exceeding sinfulness. Man, when you start understanding the law, I mean the reality of it, and then you get what Jesus Christ said about it and how he pointed out it's the inside that matters, not the outside. Boy, you start to realize, man, I'm really not as holy as I thought I was. Oh, I ain't like that wicked woman at the well. All them Pharisees are there, right? They're gathered around with this woman taken in adultery. Remember that? Jesus doesn't say a word. He stoops down and writes on the ground. I got a bunch of questions about that. Caught in the very act. What were you doing there? Jesus stoops down and right on the ground. I got to wonder because all these self-righteous guys are standing around and Jesus is looking at her and I imagine she's beat red and her head's hanging down and she can't hardly pick her head up because she would know holiness when she saw it. She knew all there was to know about wicked men. See a man that's different, heads down, and he stoops down on the ground and writes something in the dirt. I got to think he wrote, if a man looketh on a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery right in his heart. He looks up and one by one those guys are turning around leaving. Hey woman, where are thine accusers? No man condemn thee? No man, Lord. I'm going sin no more. You know what the law does? And then you take, you take the law that Moses gave you to show you how bad off we are and then you add Jesus Christ showing you spirit and sins of the spirit and truth and you start to realize, man, I'm a whole lot more sinful than I thought I was no matter how cleaned up you are. The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. <laughs> Ain't that a blessing, man? Man, I don't know why it is that some people from a bad background, a rough background, they'll say this all the time, man, I can't, I, I'm saying, well, I thought about coming to church, but if I come in there, the building will burn down. God can't forgive me. You don't know what I've done. That guy is so much closer to salvation. I don't care what he's done. He is so much closer to salvation than some self-righteous Pharisee, some good Roman Catholic who thinks they're a good person, and I go to church, and I believe in Jesus, and my good works. I've been faithful to my husband for 40 years, and I'm, you know, I'm a good man. I bring the check home. I'm faithful to my wife. That, that person's so much farther from salvation than the one that says, if I'll go in there, the building will burn down. Yeah, try it out. You know what I say to him every time? I dare you, try it. I, it, it offends me. Hey, man, you know, you offend me. Say that to him. Yeah, if I came to church, yeah, I, you're offending me. What do you mean? No, no, not how tough you are, what a bad sinner you are. The fact that you think God's that weak. The fact that you think your sin can outdo the blood of my Savior. Who do you think you are? Try it, try it. Try it, especially if you sense in them a little bit of guilt, you know, like they really aren't being arrogant about it. Like, man, if I went in there, the building would burn down. I dare you. Try it. You think you're that much of a sinner, huh? God can't save you. He came to save sinners. A law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That's why a lot of people don't get saved because they don't see the abounding of their sin. That is, sin hath reigned from de unto death, 
even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to see some things here real quick. Go to John chapter 1. So the Calvinists are going to tell you this. The Calvinists, and I'm going to, I'm going to lay just a, a real quick groundwork here for you. And, uh, and I want to give you this because we're going to get into it more when we come into the next few chapters. We're going to really try to nail it down. And I'm going to show you their proof texts. And actually, when you first look at it, it's a little confusing. And I'm going to prove to you that they're wrong. So, um, Billy, why don't you grab Romans chapter, uh, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Um, Luke, John chapter 7, verse 17. Aaron, John uh, 12, 32. Um, BJ, Romans 10, 13. Um, PJ, Hebrews 7, 25. And then... Um, Todd, you get uh, 2 Peter 3, 9. I skipped a bunch of guys, sorry. Uh, JB, 1 John 2, 2. You guys follow that? Everybody good enough? Billy, you go ahead, brother. All right, as many as received him. All right, go. Uh, um, who was next? John seven seventeen. Yeah, I'm going to do this the other way. If any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. All right, if he will do his will, he shall know the doctrine. As many as received him, it's a personal choice. Who is next? John twelve thirty two. Go ahead, brother. I will draw all men unto me. Right? Okay. That means he, if he's lifted up from the earth, he's going to draw everybody to himself. All men. The grace reigns it, unto all men unto justification. Right? Bj. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. That's anybody. Whosoever. All right, who is next? Who had, uh, you didn't get your verse. Uh, what did you just read, brother? You read uh, Romans 10, 13, so Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. That come unto God by him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As many as received him to them gave you power. You see what I'm saying? You see what the Bible's saying? Who was next? Uh, was that you, Todd? Yes, sir. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. You see how when it comes to your soul's salvation, God's putting the responsibility on the individual to come. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. It's as clear as it could possibly be. Um, JB, did you have one? And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, 
For the what? For the whole world. He's the, the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Now, here's what the, um, here's what the uh, Calvinists will, will teach you, right? And they're going to use what we're coming up to, especially in Romans. They're going to use it real heavy to try to prove their points. And there's a lot of this in our area. A lot. In the metro Detroit area and throughout Michigan, especially on the west side of the state. A lot. They call themselves Reformed, right? Reformed theology. They go by the acronym TULIP. Think of the flower. T-U-L-I-P. Number one, this is a five-point Calvinist. And you'll run into all different variations of five-point Calvinism, by the way. All right? Total depravity of man. What that means when they say total depravity of man is they mean you're so lost that you do not even have the capability of coming to Jesus Christ if you wanted to. You're so dead in trespasses and sins that there's no chance at all of you coming to the Lord. But the problem with that is, I've taught you over and over again, the fact that you're even alive means that God put life into you. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So when you die, the Bible tells you the spirit goes back to God that gave it. The spirit is your, your human. The spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord and he searches the innermost parts of the belly, right? So the spirit is the life force inside of you that came from God. And when you die, he takes the spirit back. Your soul is your consciousness of yourself. Your spirit is your consciousness of God. And it's dead in trespasses and sins. But it's alive enough, you're still alive. You've got a human spirit. Just like a bird has the spirit of a bird, a dog has the spirit of a dog, you've got a human instinct. What man knoweth the things of man save the spirit of man that is in him. That's how you can send messages to people without saying it, you know. Women are a little better at it than men are. You know, you're just being a jerk. That's a sinful spirit, right? So God put the spirit in them. And he says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Your soul is your consciousness of yourself. Your intellect, your emotions, your will, your personality, the way you process things. And then you got the body. That's how you experience life in this world around you. That's how you operate in this world. So they say, you're so depraved, you don't even have the capability of coming to God. Then they say, election is unconditional. In other words, God picks who gets saved and who doesn't. It's his choice. You got nothing to say about it. They say, limited atonement. That means the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth some people. It's limited. Only to the ones who've been elected. In other words, they believe God in time past, in eternity past, sat in eternity past, and picked and chose who was going to get saved and who wasn't. And if you're saved, it's because God picked you in eternity past. It has nothing to do with you responding to the gospel, obeying the gospel, coming to Him, receiving Him, being drawn by him, he draws who he wants to draw only if they're elected. The rest of them were born to damnation and will burn in hell, period. No ability to get saved. Folks, that is a wicked doctrine. I just, we, he just read you the verse about the propitiation for the sin of the world. Irresistible grace. If you're one of the elect, the time comes in your life where the grace of God floods over to you to such extent you can't say no anymore. <laughs> yeah, you should laugh. You've got too much common sense. That's why you can't swallow that. That's ridiculous. 
In other words, in other words, God's got Jesus Christ had to make a decision. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He made a decision to follow God. Jesus Christ did. Irresistible grace. You lost your mind. And then the last one is the preservation of the saints. That's the P for your tulip. That, this, is, this is how they get around it now, because then they know people that got saved and backslide, right? Well, he was never saved in the first place, because if you're actually saved, you don't ever quit. Oh, we believe in the preservation of the saints, don't you? I believe in the preservation of the saints. I believe my eternal soul is preserved once I get saved, but that doesn't mean my state in Michigan is that I'm always going to serve God and not going to backslide. You see what they do with that? You know what these bunch of hypocrites do? I, I've known a bunch of them throughout my life. You know what they do? <sighs> They're so dishonest. How come when you get elected, your wife always is? Why would all your kids make it in? How come it ain't like, yeah, that little Esau over there ain't elected. They're going to hell. God designed her for that. <laughs> no, but your little brats are all elected, right? You hypocrite. And they're going to use some of this stuff and some of these verses taken out of context. All the free gift and the, the, the universalists use this. They're going to use some of this stuff to try to tell you that if you, you can't come to God unless he draws you. Some of these guys go so far as to say that if you pray to prayer, which is not connected to these guys, okay, this is a different one, a different false doctrine. But I want you to get this in your mind and remember this. This is going to come up again as we go through here. This thing is telling you that it's a free gift, that you come to it and you receive it if you want it. Go to Romans chapter 10 and we'll stop for tonight. Look at this. Romans chapter 10, comparing Scripture with Scripture. The free gift is not so free as the universalists take it, right? To say it's automatically given. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you prayed a prayer to get saved, you're not really saved because a prayer is a work. You see what they do with the Bible? You guys see that? Don't you ever let somebody get you on that stuff. And if they get you and you're feeling confused and frustrated, come talk to me, please. Because what they do is major on minors. And they pull stuff out of context. Now, we're going to get in a lot deeper. I just I wanted to give this to you because, listen, the first time I got this, I didn't get it. And then the second time, I didn't get it. And the third time, it just for a lot of you are probably like me. It takes a while for some of this stuff to soak in. So I'm setting you up for chapter 9 because we're going to go over there and you're going to see how he has some vessels that he created under dishonor and a judgment. And it's like if God wants this to use them in this way, then who's to, who are you to say to God? And, that, and it gets so confusing because these guys get in your head and you start looking at some of those passages and it's like, wait a minute, well, what? But we're going to go back because he's using Pharaoh as an illustration. And we're going to go back and we're going to look at the history the historical application of Pharaoh, and I'm going to show you what happens when God had him as a vessel and a dishonor and kept him preserved for that purpose before God ever made him seal the damnation, which did happen. God hardened his heart. And they'll say, see, unconditional election, the people that don't get saved don't get saved because God hardened their heart and they can't get saved unless God picked them and you got saved, so God obviously picked you. You were one of the elect. 
Some take it so far as to say you could get down here and scream and cry out to God all you want for salvation, but if you aren't elected, he's not saving you. They mess with people's heads. And then they'll take you over to Romans chapter 9 and they'll show you that and then you're really scratching your head. I'm going to take you back to Genesis and I'm going to show you the process God put Pharaoh through before God hardened his heart to use him the way God used him. He told God no twice when God gave him two chances before his heart got hardened. Obedience. Sensitivity to God's spirit. Doing what you're told is extremely important. So that wraps us up for Romans chapter number 5, and uh, we'll pick it up in Romans chapter 6 in two weeks. And just let me say it this way before we get there. If you're one of those Christians that wants to be in church on Sunday and Wednesday night, and then you want to go out and party on Friday night, and you want to fornicate on uh, Friday night and Saturday night, but come into church on Sunday and feel like it's okay because the person you fornicated with isn't married, so it's not adultery, and you're a monogamous fornicator, so you're all right, just don't come two weeks from tonight, all right? Stay home, set out Romans chapter 6, and, uh, and just, you know, come back after that because you're not going to be happy at all if you come two weeks from tonight, okay? Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you so much for being so good to us. Thank you for your grace. Uh, thank you for writing this book, and I thank you for writing it the way you wrote it. Uh, I know you're God, and I know you know what you're doing. You wrote this thing perfectly. And I just adore this book, and I pray you'd help us to believe it, help us to study it. I pray you'd allow us to understand it. God, the entrance of thy words giveth light, giveth understanding unto the simple. And we need your help in understanding these things. Protect us from false doctrines, strengthen us, uh, give everybody a good uh, remainder of their week, and bring us back here on Sunday, we pray. Give us a great Sunday, and then we ask you, God, please, for a great meeting this coming week. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.